Welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories to gather insights that will help you live a meaningful life. At the end of the podcast, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes that have been raised in our conversation. But I'm really excited because our guest today is a business historian, an author, a book coach, a publisher, and basically anything to do with books, including that she has written several biographies for wealthy families and some of the biggest and oldest companies in Australia. Her name is Jackie Lane, and the fun fact about Jackie is she's been practicing the saxophone for two years, so I'll be interested to see how that's working out. And another fun fact is that I was actually her first book coaching client when she launched that business a few years back. So let's find out more about her work, her life, and where she finds meaning and purpose. Welcome to the Purpose Edge, Jackie. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, saxophone practice is going badly. Oh, okay. Well, I won't ask for a little demo then. We'll keep that. Uh, we'll keep that for the maybe the longer um, bonus version sometime later. Good idea. So we're going to put some cards on the table here, Jackie, and find out where you were born. Which country? I, I was born in a um, small town in New Zealand, about an hour and a half north of Wellington, called Palmerston North. And do you get back there very often? I try not to. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> um, I think I, I really I left there when I was about 12 because I went to boarding school um, in an even smaller town and have never really been back. Um, I think I just kept on going to larger and larger cities until I ended up in Sydney 30-odd um, years ago. Okay, so the Palmerston North Tourism Board might be doing cartwheels over that introduction. Um when you... No, that, yeah, it's um, but it's it's quite well known for Massey University, actually. Okay, well that's great. So tell me about what you did, I guess, in in terms of New Zealand, in terms of your education, and where you, I guess, initially started off in terms of your career. Yeah, um, good question. So uh, I had a burning desire to be New Zealand's first woman prime minister from about the age of thirteen. You got beaten um, to it by Jacinda. I got some bad news there. <laughs> well, there were oh, two. Oh, no, sorry, Helen Clark. There were two before her, actually. Um, wow, okay. So, um, so actually, I, yeah, so I had two, two desires, either to go into the diplomatic corps or um, go into politics uh, because my godmother and my cousin was New Zealand's first female diplomat. So I thought that sounded like a good gig. Um, and I asked her advice and um, about what I should study. And she said I needed a first-class honours degree in either politics or languages. So uh, my parents were quite active in local politics, so I chose politics. And I put my head down from about the age of 13 until I popped out the other end with a first-class honours degree in politics, majoring in Russian politics. Fantastic. Well, well, that's probably come around, you know, now at this time in your life, that is really important because how many of us do those subjects of vocations at uni that we never actually use that much? Yeah, so yes. Um, and so, yeah, people ask me a lot about what I think is going on at the moment with Putin and Russia. <laughs> um, I, I believe that's that could be a longer conversation for another time. Um, but uh, you never know, we might come back to it later. But I think you tried your hand at politics um, early on. How did that go? Yeah, look, very good. So um, as when I was doing my master's degree, um, I think I was probably the only um, conservative person in the class. 
And as a part-time job, I got a role as being the research associate for a book that was being written on the history of the New Zealand National Party. So um, when I left university, I went and took on the auspicious role as the youth director of the New Zealand National Party. And I spent three or four years doing that job. And in the process of that, worked with a number of ministers uh, in and around research and speech writing and politics. And um, was getting close to that goal of perhaps ending up with a safe seat to go and contest. Um, then an offer came up through a contact to come over to Australia and work on a, another research project. So I thought, hmm, I haven't really been out of Australia and out of New Zealand. I think I should go over to Australia for a couple of years and see the big wide world, which was Australia for me at that time. So I arrived here in 1987 to do that two-year project and never went back. Okay, so and you came to Sydney then? Yeah. Yes, I did. Well, you beat me by a year because I arrived in Sydney in 88 as the tall ships were sailing out of the harbour. There you go. There you go. So what was that research project and and what did that uh what did you find out about yourself from I guess doing that work? Yeah. So that was uh it was for a book that was commissioned for the Australian Stock Exchange um to to look at the history of entrepreneurship in Australia. So my really tough job was to run around Australia um interviewing all of Australia's leading business people and then um, co-writing co a book about entrepreneurship in Australia. Um, so what did I learn about myself? Um, uh, that I that I actually like learning. I'm really curious. Um, I have a passion for learning and uh, that um, there was a gap in the marketplace in terms of um, who, you know, some of these people that I were interviewing, a number of them asked me to research and write their books. And I hadn't planned to do that, um, but I had this wacky idea that I should start a business book publishing company and do that. And um, one of the people I interviewed thought that was a really good idea, so we formed a business together to do just that, and neither of us knew anything about publishing. Um, and that business went continued for 24 years. Okay. Successfully? Very. Yeah. Okay. And how do you close down a project like that or, or is it still going in another form somewhere? Um, well, no, the, the GSC closed down that business okay. <laughs> pretty rapidly, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a GSC survivor, um, but not in that business. Um, so, yeah, that was a big learning curve for me um, and, uh, and, and really challenging time personally because um, I just couldn't work hard enough. I thought if I worked hard enough, long enough, I could make come out the other end, and it just wasn't about that. So I learned a lot about business and myself over that time, and um, I wouldn't recommend the process, um, but I learned a lot. So I guess with, with the pandemic um, very fresh in our minds and the disruptions that has caused, the GFC or global financial crisis was 2008. It was sort of playing out around then. Um, how do you, in that situation, take stock of where you're at and what your next move is? Yeah, great question, Phil. Um, I think um, looking back on on that that thing around in 2008, nine, um, 
I really didn't take stock at all. It was it, things were happening to me. Um, but what I did get to very quickly was that um, I had to look after my my own physical and mental health and well-being. And because um, I had a young son and was a single mum, and it became pretty quickly apparent that if I didn't look after myself, I wouldn't be able to look after him or anything else. And it really, really focused my attention on what was absolutely important. And that was my son and myself. And basically nothing else mattered. Everything else really was a bit of a game. You know, does, that, does um, that mean stripping away a lot of what you'd think of as luxury items, whether it's just hanging out with certain friends? Uh, no, it was more an internal discussion, actually. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, I had tightened my belt, but I kind of didn't go without, you know, I wasn't partying hard, but then again, I never did. Um, it was actually more a mental, a, a, a real deep dive into what I thought success was or and what success looked like. Um, um, what was important and perhaps what wasn't. And um, it was about kind of really getting focused on the real true priorities in life. And none of them had to do with anything material. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are jumping forward a little bit really here, but what does success look like then? If it's not material, what, what is it? Uh, success is the quality of the relationships you have in your life and the meaningful contribution you can make in other people's lives is what it looks like for me now. That's wonderful. Yeah. On the subject of family and sons and daughters, many listeners will have them or have friends with them or other family members with them. I have one of each and they're both adults now. And I remember thinking, I'll be such a cool dad. You know, we'll be so <laughs> open and honest and funky with each other. And the reality is, even with great intentions, it's really, really hard. So tell me about how your relationship with your son changed at a certain point in time. Um, yeah, interesting. Another great question. Um, so, so you know, my son and I were the team, um, and um, and that was really great. But it was quite hard being a mum and a dad. So I had to find the right cadence for me and for him around that because I guess you have views about what a dad's role is and a mum's role is and and I was doing both and I'm and you know I think I did a pretty good job <laughs> um but the interesting I think an interesting point came for me um you know when my son was I guess in his late teens you know last couple of years of school and you know I'm a complete overachiever organizer Virgo whatever and he's not and so, you know, we butted heads a lot because um, I had my expectations for him and how that should play out. And he had his own and he wasn't interested in mine. <laughs> mm, so values, some, some uh, different values. There. I guess he would have had a set of very common values, but also some yeah. that were quite um, different. And so we, we, I pushed a lot, you know, I want, you know and, and then I really got to a point where and it didn't happen in the sequence, but, um, I went away for a um, a, a, a three-day retreat, no talking retreat, ha-ha. <laughs> and my friends thought it was hilarious that I couldn't do it, that I wasn't allowed to talk for three days. Um, but it was great. It was a meditation retreat, and I'd never, ever done anything like that before. 
And that was another big kind of internal. And I hadn't gone away to achieve anything. I just thought, thought it'd be fun to do it. Um, and I actually, you know, and learned a bit of meditation and stuff. And the whole concept of letting go, trying to control things. Mm -hmm. Sounds like uh, a high achiever common problem. <laughs> And um, so when I came, and I really vividly remember this, I remember coming back from that retreat and walking in and my son saying to me, how did, how did it go, Mum? I said, really well, and you're going to be really happy because you know what? You can do what you want. I'm going to stop pushing and shoving you. I'll try, I might fall back into my old ways, but I said, really, um, you're smart enough and you're old enough to make your decisions. I'm really sorry I've been pushing and shoving you. Um, I'm here. I'm your backstop. Up to you to start making decisions because um, you'll live with the consequences. And he looked at me and he said, are you serious? And I said, I am really serious. And, and was there and, a, a tear shed and a, and a hug uh, that you had or was it no, just that? Lots of, yeah, lots of hugs. Right. Um, no tears. Um, and... And that fundamentally changed our relationship for the better. Um, so that was really interesting. Yeah. So that's um, quite a transformation there. What yep. uh, you mentioned, your parents were politically engaged. So outside of the relationship with your son, what influence have other family members had on you? Um, not much, really. I have three older brothers. Um who all do completely different things and who all live in New Zealand. Um, so I don't really have, uh, you know, brothers that, um, siblings, but my mother certainly um, and my dad in different ways um, and good and bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, so without going into a psychotherapy session. Um, so... Yeah, one of the things that's very, and I have written about this actually, is that um, one thing that I was very, very focused on um, was that I was always going to be financially independent, that I did not ever want to be in any situation where I was dependent on somebody else for my financial and physical well-being. And that's driven me pretty much all my life and make, and in some cases, over, you know, put me in overdrive, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, um, and that was a good learning for me as well. Mm. It's great when you can recognize these things and therefore you know it's a weakness, yes, but I'm aware, more aware of that challenge, yeah. as you said, with your son and when you were thinking in your business originally just working hard meant success, but it, it doesn't always. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you think about books, everything about your world seems to be books or words. <laughs> Yeah, you know, what is it? Why have you gravitated there? Um, interesting. Uh, so of course, yeah, I ended up in publishing. I was going to be going to politics, and I ended up in publishing. Um, I think it's this. I'm I'm just voraciously curious, uh, and um, I'm and and books and doing books and working with people and companies, and I love business history. I've just and I've also you know so I like business. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I guess that's come from those two research projects I initially did and, 
And initially I was a publisher and I stopped, didn't really do any writing. I was running a business uh, and learning as I went. And um, and then when, when my, you know, that business kind of, you know, came to a grinding halt, I actually had to sit back and think, well, what am I going to do next? Um, I have to have a job. I've got to, you know, pay the bills. And then I took three months. I gave myself three months to um, have a think that through. And I thought to my, and I, and I also remember this very clearly thinking, well, what would I most like to do in the world? And I thought I'd actually really like to go back to researching and writing business story, business histories. So I said, oh, okay, let me create a company to do that. So you do, so I did. And then I thought me being very Virgo goal orientated, I thought, well, what's going to success look like for that for me? And I thought, well, hey, I've got to get some clients. But I thought if I could um, secure a ASX listed top 20 company as a client in my first two or three years, that would be a core goal for me. And I think at the end of year three, I had four ASX listed companies. Wow. So, and I'd written other books in, in between times. So, I yeah, I kind of went back to what, well, I found my love. I didn't go back to it. I kind of, I went, found what I really am passionate about, which is I love talking to people. Um, so I interview a lot of people for the corporate history work that I do, um, prime ministers, presidents, um, um, you know, uh, regulators, um, people within the company, um, family members, if it's a family business history. I've done work all around the world, all sorts of com countries and companies. Um, I get to learn and a lot from a lot of people every day. Um, and it was from that those discussions, actually, and talking to people like yourself, a number of the people I were interviewing were business people saying, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, I can help you with that. <laughs> There's, uh, there's a lot of us out there. So I've, I've been madly scribbling some Venn diagrams here, Jackie, while you've been talking, and I can see that, you know, your passion is lining up with your curiosity and and what you can get paid for, and that's intersecting in this book world. So You got it. There you go. There's, there's, that's sort of the, the draft Venn diagram. <laughs> so I want to uh, now switch to director, Jackie, because I don't know if you remember where we first met. Do you remember? Yes, oh. I do. It was, uh, no, I hope we've got the same memory because I believe it was, I was facilitating a board session for a charity that you Correct. were chairing at yes. that time. Yep. And you've played, I think, many voluntary roles in on boards. And for people who haven't been in that sort of role, what, what does that responsibility feel like? Uh, it's it's feels great. Uh, so the um, charity that you're referring to is the Footpath Library. And I was the inaugural chair, so I helped the founder of that, Sarah Garnett, who um, had had was doing some work with homeless people, and and um, basically she had she was was going down to Woolloomooloo and literally putting books out on the footpath um, for homeless people because there was a food van there, and um, we got introduced by a mutual friend, and I said, well, I can help you grow this thing. Oh, here we go, Jackie, yeah, get again. Um, so we created the name and, you know, we, we formed a chief, you know, we formed a charity and I was the inaugural chair, uh, founding chair and had, took that role for seven years. Wow. Um, and no brainer for me, books, books and knowledge and people. 
So, um, and um, so I had been on some not-for-profit boards previously, but never had been the never chair. Um, but my role in other not-for-profit organisations as a board director meant that I kind of did a learning, had a learning curve and watched other chairs and, you know, other board people and got to understand how a board works and how board meetings work and how people work. Um, so I'd probably had half a dozen board director roles, not-for-profit, unpaid, prior to taking on that chair role. Right. I think in terms of what I've noticed in looking at not-for-profit boards, for example, there's there's a lot of people on a trajectory and they've done a director's course and they want to work their way up with the ultimate goal of being some non-executive director on big company boards, I guess. There's people who are passionate about the organisation who jump on there, but sometimes both of those groups, they're not always, uh, I guess, really putting in what the, the board needs. Um the first group might be treating it with a little bit of disdain or thinking this is just a, a charity, sort of why put too much effort in. The other group might be full of enthusiasm but maybe not effective in a, in a board environment. Have you ever encountered any or all of those situations? And if so, how do you deal with that sort of thing? Uh, I've encountered them all. Um, and, and interestingly, I am on no boards now. So that's the outcome, is it? You, you've gone. Ah, I've done my, I've done my bit for for a while. I'm retreating. Um, well, I got to a point where I was on several boards, all non-paying, and it was taking up half of my time. I was going to uh, say, I, I would have thought one would be enough, but yeah. So be, yeah. So um, yeah. So I've encountered all of those, and and I think you've really nailed it. Um, if you want to use a not-for-profit board as a springboard for a um, professional director um, career, um, uh, and and everyone says, "Oh, that's the way, that's the pathway," I actually disagree with that. I don't think it's the best pathway. Um, what, what would you say, or is there such thing as a perfect pathway? Uh, no, I don't think there is a perfect pathway, and it's. Doubly hard for women. Um, uh, so again, a lot of a lot of women tend to go the not for profit then then paid, whereas I think way less men do that. Uh, they go, they use their networks um, on boards and network their way through to paying boards much more quickly. Um, and women, there aren't enough women directors for women to be able to network with the director network. Um, so I think I was quite fortunate in that 90% of my corporate clients are men. So I networked really effectively and could have gone that professional route had I wanted to. Is that changing? But, I, I imagine that is changing, but is it changing at a fast enough rate? It's changing glacially slow. So it's not changing at a fast enough rate. So the women who are on boards tend to be on multiple boards and are really stretched. Um, and um, there's, there's just, you know, if you don't have a big enough cohort of, in this case, women, um, it's really hard, you know, to, um, and they can't provide that support that a normal cohort would because it's just too small. Um, so, yeah, the, the, going back to your question, though, is there a difference between people who are um, 
committed but not prof- not looking to go professional and those who are f- professional perhaps not so committed. Yeah. Um, yes, there is. Um, and I had to manage that. Uh, and as a chairman, you need to be very cognizant of why people, why a, what skill set that you you want to bring to your board, um, and and then what are what are your potential board members? What are they looking to get out of it? And it's nothing. There's no right or wrong, but you need to make sure that the personalities and the values and the outcomes that your board collective board members are um, looking at work together. Um, and because if they don't, you're going to be the one with the problem. Yep. So some tough love is probably needed there from time to time. I think tough love is definitely needed. Um, and also be very careful about who you um, put on the board in the first place. You know, a friend of a friend who's good at IT is not necessarily a good board member to deal with the <laughs> with the risk compliance of of, of um, corporate governments around privacy. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's heaps of learnings um, you've gathered there, which are really valuable, and they probably help you in navigating some of the the family histories and that type of work you've been doing. And I'm interested to explore that a little bit more because I think you said entrepreneurial er earlier on, and this would definitely connect in with your entrepreneurial spirit and flair and admiration. So what when you do, I think you've done several sort of private biographies of Um, families that have built up quite big businesses. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I describe them slightly differently. Private family companies. Right. Um, I don't do business biography of people. It's of the company. Um, and they're a mixture of family businesses, just private private companies and asx companies. And the family theme, though, is quite prevalent in the story, I, I imagine, for many of them. Um, look, and, you know, I'm working on a couple at the moment, trying to finish them off. Um, every... Family business has different levels at which they want to have the family versus the business. Some want lots of family and, you know, an equal share of family and business. Others don't want any family and just focus on the business. Some want, you know, so there's no strict balance, I guess. Uh, It really depends on the business and the people. And what would you conclude about, I guess, the purpose or the drive of different family or other key members of those businesses? What what does uh, purpose mean for them? Is it always very financial or do you find it's quite varied? Oh, um, it's very, very clear and very simple. They are intergenerational custodians of family wealth and security. Um, so they make longer-term decisions that would may often be detrimental to them and their immediate family at this point because it is better for the business in the longer term. Whereas in listed companies, it's the, completely the opposite. It's what's the next three years, what can be achieved on my tenure, what's going to um, up my short-term um, bonus thing, uh, What's the share market going to like every quarter or every half? There is, they are just completely different. So it's a bit of a luxury as a family or private company to not have disclosure 
requirements and continuous totally. requirements. Totally. And therefore, and, yeah. I mean, purpose is about planning, so those plans can be much longer in duration. Yeah, and and pretty much every family business that I've done, um, the history of somebody or several people have said on numerous points of time, we probably wouldn't be here had we been a, a listed company. Okay. Because they've all every business goes through ups and downs, but if you're a family business uh, and you're making decisions um, about the long-term viability of the business, you might go for years without taking any money out, you know, profits out, um, you know, or distributing any funds, or or because you because you're not, you know, obviously they you pay yourself and all the rest of it, but they're not taking significant chunks of change off the table. Um, and, and most family businesses will have been through that. Um, so, yeah, there is just a completely different mindset and they don't see their business as their business. It's it's that um, they're custodians. That's interesting. I just want to briefly um, talk about your politics, Jackie, because you did mention <laughs> it earlier and what I admire about you what I've noticed is that you sit comfortably in most audiences. You you sit very comfortably in a big business boardroom audience and the executive audience, and you sit very comf- comfortably at the grassroots issues of our times. And I, do, I think I remember you telling me about at the last election you were running around putting up some signs and all sorts of things like that. So how would you describe your yourself Um <laughs> Whether it's politically, socially, or otherwise, um, uh, I'm pretty direct. <laughs> you did you did use the word conservative earlier, but I'm I'm not sure I, I would classify. Look, um, you know, um, if you'd have to describe my politics now, I'd, I'd kind of be more like social democraty. You know, even though we don't kind of have that. Um, um, so. You know, I'm a free marketer. You know, I naturally would sit in the Liberal Party and used to used to be a member. Uh, I got disillusioned with them a couple of elections ago over things like um, their refugee policy, um, you know, a whole range of policies. So I pulled the pen um, because the, the value alignment was, had disappeared on many issues. Yep. Um, so um, I'm now proudly... Um, I don't belong to any party, uh, and um, I now actively campaign for independence. Um, because I have a very clear view about how I'd like to see our political system work better. Just, just briefly, for a moment, jumping back to your um, clients that you uh, businesses you write um, yeah. the books for, will you screen them according to what they do and what they've done, or are you you're agnostic? Um. Yeah, good point. Um, I can't uh, hand on heart. I can't say I screen screen them um, for that, um, and um, because you know I've done. Yes, yeah, if you look at the top twenty companies, I've done histories for probably eight or nine of them. Um, and had I screened them for um, climate. Um, mining banking finance <laughs> i wouldn't have done work with probably any of them yeah and it's a it's a difficult conversation that one from my investment management days sort of thinking could we set up an ethical fund and then you think about well how would you actually set the rules for what is ethical and what isn't i mean 
doing um, things that yeah. doing things that are legal is the baseline. Sorry, legal, not illegal, is the baseline. But then, how do you build out your rules? It's a really challenging. Task. It is, and and you know, I've been known to take a few pot shots at various um, professional services firms over the years. Um, and um, you know, it's a great line that I quote: that just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. Mm. And I think, and I'm actually about to post a post in the next couple of days, um, and it's called um, CE um, CEG, not CFG. Uh, sorry, the GFC, not GFC. It's GE. Yeah. So, and it's um, greed, entitlement, and corruption. Right. Because I've just had a gut full of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you in a second what really gets on your goat, and you you like a self-sourcing pudding there. You've just answered it. So <laughs> that <laughs> that, and you everyone will be able to hear about it shortly. <laughs> okay, well we look forward to that. Coming back, I think it's interesting that so legal boundaries are a hard edge. Then there's this next layer we call social norms. Yep. which will be different depending on who you talk to, but some things we have very consistent social norms on and other yep. things we're miles apart. So it gets it does get murky pretty quickly in some issues, such as forestry, for example, uh, or alcoholic beverages. Yep. They're, they're not as clear-cut as other issues that are ethically, um, if, you, if you really want to make an easy ethical decision, look at tobacco or um, cluster bomb manufacturing and, and so on. Yeah. So how do you wrestle with with all these different, I guess, forces that are pulling us around when we're trying to make decisions as consumers or professionals or any other, or as as directors of organisations? Yeah. Um, I guess I take the point of view that not everyone's going to have my point of view, um, and that's fine. And I would rather engage people who disagree with me um, and I quite like that, um, provided it's it's a a um, not personal um, and open conversation because life would be really boring if everybody agreed with everybody. Mm. Um, and so let me take a, a kind of a, an interesting thing. So I think, you know, I do a lot of work up in the Middle East um, and, and have done over 20-odd years. Um, and I remember when I first started going up there, people said to me, how can you go up and do work in the Middle East? And I went, well, I get on a plane and I go. And they said, but it's sexist and it's racist and you can't, you know, you can't do what you want to do and people won't want to do business with you. And, and I said, well, that's not my experience, having been up there a lot. Um some countries are more liberal than others and um, I've said part of what my passion for doing this is is because I want to build a network of business women across the Middle East and Australia um, to op open up channels of communication and engagement to try and break down some of those barriers. And you're not going to do that if you just sit here and complain about other people in other countries and what their laws are. You need to go up there to understand them and then you need to talk to people and not with the view of changing them but perhaps opening their mind to other possibilities, however big or small. Like get engaged is your message by the sounds of it. 
totally. And yeah. I used to bring groups of Arab business women to Australia and take them around business leaders in Australia because most of them had never met an Arab business woman. But most of them didn't even know they existed. And that talk about family businesses, the Middle East has got some of the biggest family business billion billion dollar conglomerates in the world and number of them are run by women so, so when, you, when, when you think about the approach to change there there is there would seem to be a role for both ends of the spectrum so one end of the spectrum you have that hard activist this is wrong yeah. message and at the other end you have well let's let's get in there from the inside change it from the inside out which you just gave an example of that, but I could imagine you being the activist as well. So do you <laughs> do you find yourself switching between modes? Um, it depends on on the on the cause. <laughs> okay. So 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 with that thing around Middle East and 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 um, you know, I guess that engagement, I'm the engager. You know, I've got good networks. I can I can engage people. If most people's view of the Middle East is what they see on the seven or six o'clock news, we're all stuffed, um, you know, because that's not pretty, but that's not lots of people. Um, uh, am I going to change people's view any other way than trying to find ways for different people to get together in a room? Um, and yeah, we do need the activists and out there, um, uh, but that's not me in that case. Um, if it's about refugee policy, absolutely, I'll be activist. Um, in this country and our, our laws, absolutely. Mm. Um, so for me, it depends and and on how I think I can best affect change. Yeah. So, again, that comes back to your strengths and skills playing, playing your cards to, to what you're good at. Yeah. Um, and also what I have the time for. You know, I think that it takes a lot of time mm. to do all of those sorts of things, to be involved in your, your you know, in, on not-for-profit boards and have a meaningful involvement. I mean, I've been on a number of boards where people are literally there in name only yep. because they only want their name on the board to get the next step or to whatever reason, and they might as well not be there. Mm. And they never do anything or if they, they undertake to do something they never do. Um, so if you're going to get into any of those things or you're passionate about it, you have to commit a serious amount of time. And those voluntary environments are, are quite hard because you don't have that direct remuneration that says you must be doing this. It's a voluntary thing. Which Well, and also you're, you're relying on lots of other volunteers and so that they might not do their stuff but exactly when you want it done and all the rest of it, and you will know that. Um, you know, so you have to have, you have to be a lot more gentle and not for profit volunteer boards, mm. you know, and I think I was probably too tough in my early ones because, you know, I was full on and let's do this and let's do that. And you said, you're going to do this and this and this and, you know, and, and then so, you know, I realized I was like at the end of the hundred meters and some people are only in the first 10 meters Yeah, and, yeah. and that's not good either. <laughs> you're reminding me of something I learned of after several years of probably getting beaten around the head with this issue, facilitating projects where you had different, where you had businesses coming together with community groups and government departments and all those different types of cultures coming together. I thought, why don't they just get together and do it? And then I found the real trick seems to be finding the right cadence because business 
would want to move fast, but quite often in spurts. Um, but, so you have to slow them down a bit. And on the community side, you might have to speed them up a bit and government something else. So it was trying to find the right cadence that everyone could come along at. Yeah, and that's a really great insight, Phil. And um, and I think learning that skill it applies to all parts of your life, your yes. kids, your other relationships, your family, you know, I mean, you know, I'm pretty full on it out there. And, you know, I used to think my brothers, come on, guys, get your act together. But hang on, they're fine the way they are. It was just, you know, and I had to learn to chill out and just kind of, whoa, just, you know. The, the so, sad thing is it's sometimes easier to, to do in your work context than it is in your personal context. Absolutely. And in fact, probably it's it's the same everywhere, but often most of us see the two as quite separate. And in fact, they're probably not. No. No. Okay. Well, Jackie, I've got three questions um, to sort of lead us into a into a wrap here. And what I'm really after is your I just your gut feel initial response and don't uh, agonize over it too much. The okay. first, first of three questions is, and I ask these of every guest, what does purpose mean for you? Making a positive difference in someone else's life. Well done. Straight straight back at me there's no <laughs> there's no hesitation because i think that's a challenging question and people give very different answers to that so wonderful second question what is meaningful for you going forward or you could re- you could think about that as well how do you gain clarity for choosing or deciding what you do in the future um being more led by my heart as opposed to my head. A bit of rebalancing there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And I think and I think being a bit older is part of that too. You know, um, I don't feel like I need to prove myself as much anymore. So I'm more interested in um, you know, different things. Yep. So you've had your own journey and you've gained a lot of insights and had some really I would say meaningful experiences. What is your, if you're put up on a pedestal and someone says, what's your one piece of advice you could give someone else about gaining more meaning and purpose or making more impact in their life? What would your one nugget be? Wow. I'll start, I'll sing a little tune for a moment. You can have a few seconds to think about that. Um, Okay, I've got an answer. Um, here we go. Um, don't be so much in a hurry to make decisions and move. Stand, take the time to stand back and understand if what you're doing is really aligned to what gives you, you know, aligned to your values and what gives you a level of peace wonderful well that's a wonderful piece of advice to go out on jackie and i'm going to include your contact details in the show notes and if anyone's out there needing help putting pen to paper especially if you're a business or an entrepreneur um, then i highly recommend jackie's experience and guidance but for now thanks for coming on to have a chat with us and sharing your purpose edge uh my pleasure phil and thank you for having me great thanks Thank you.
So what do we take away from Jackie's conversation? And I'm going to give you a couple of summary points. But before I jump in, I always want you just to have a bit of a reflection about what you took away. What resonated the most with you from what she shared with us? There was certainly a lot in her story. So I'm going to offer up three little takeaways, but they are three of many. Uh, Number one, career journey. So her career journey is always centered around books and business and publishing. And that took uh, root fairly early on. And it's just tended to take different forms throughout her her career. So it's interesting that she's never really gone undergone really radical change in her direction or career direction, but she's she's undergone radical change within that um, direction, if that makes sense. Number two, she faced a pretty significant crisis uh, in 2008, both a business crisis and personal crisis. And she had to get really clear on what was important for her. And in that process, she prioritized the physical, mental health and well-being of her and her son. That was the thing she had to put front and center at that time. So it's important to get clear on what matters and what's meaningful in those moments. And thirdly, there's a great uh, recurring theme in that conversation about playing to your strengths. So with Jackie, it's learning, curiosity, business and networks and entrepreneurship, engaging with people in ideas and conversations. So you can see how combinations of these would come together again and again as we saw her career and life journey evolve. As usual, there's some links and further information in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love to get your rating so we can help more people hone their purpose edge. And until next time, I'm Phil Preston and thanks for listening. 